Now's the time to have the bull at your back with Merrill. Learn more at MerrillLynch.com bullish. Investing involves risk. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated, registered broker-dealer, registered investment advisor, member SIPC. I'm Ed Baxter. And I'm Denise Pellegrini. Welcome to Bloomberg Wealth with David Rubenstein, part of our Best of Bloomberg series. Now, Denise, as you know, we always hear for some great people and get special insight in these Bloomberg Wealth specials. Yeah, we sure do. And in this episode, we are focusing on private equity. And this comes at a time when private equity is really in focus as borrowing costs continue to rise, making it challenging for the industry to raise money for deals. And in this episode in that vein, Ed, we hear from Marty Nesbitt. He is founding partner and co-CEO of the Chicago-based Vistria Group, and he talks all about investing. And also about his path to the business world to begin with and his relationship with former President Barack Obama. And here is David Rubenstein now with Nesbitt. Let's listen in. Now, I've said that private equity is the highest calling of mankind. Uh, do you agree <laughs> with that yet? Well, I think uh, it could be. I think uh, private equity players are in a position to make a really meaningful impact on the world and that we could leverage the way we use private capital to solve big problems. Now, in a relatively short period of time, you've built a very well-known mid-market buyout firm, which is now expanding into real estate and credit. Um, how did you do it in 10 years or so? What did you do to get this firm off the ground? Because you didn't have a back background in private equity. I think we were lucky and we had the right idea at the right time. I think one of my close friends says, Kip and Marty kind of caught lightning in a bottle. Uh, and I think the combination of building, investing in infrastructure and people early, uh, ahead of our fund size, uh, and then the timing with the investment thesis uh, facilitated that rapid growth. And of course, early success helped us accelerate it. When you look at a deal, uh, what are you, the things you're most looking for to decide if you're going to go forward or not? Well, we try to be very proactive in the way we invest. So we spend a lot of time developing themes behind which we want to invest. And so when we, when a deal comes investment committee, we better have a theme, we better have operating partner and advisors that know a lot about the business, uh, and we better have a relationship and an a with the management team and an angle to sort of systematically create value. How many deals have you done, control deals? You're, all your deals are buyout control deals? Yes. How many have you done in the 10 years or so? Uh, I think probably 45. Or and 45, all 45 worked out perfectly? <laughs> you know, this business, it's all hard, right? And everything doesn't work out exactly the way you plan, uh, but you do your best, best to bring the resources you have available to to optimize the outcome. Now, we've had a lot of success. So generally, people who invest in buyout funds are looking for today, I would say, net internal rates of return of 16, 17, 18 percent. It's harder to get much higher on a consistent basis given high inflation is and interest rates. But is that roughly what you're shooting for? Now, we try to underwrite to three times our money in five years, a 25 percent IRR. That's pretty good. Uh, it's pretty good. It's, I think, easier to do in the middle market uh, where, you know, the right resources, strategy, uh, a little elbow grease, you can sort of outrun the competition. Let's talk about your background. Where were you born? I was born in Columbus, Ohio. And uh, your mother and father were? Yeah, my mother was, uh, uh, she is a nurse or just retired as a nurse, but for most of her career, in fact, she graduated from college the same time I did uh, uh, when she was much older. But 
Uh, she was a domestic worker, a nurse's aide. My father worked in a factory. My mother was a piano player and choir director in the church. Where did you go to college? I went to a small school in Michigan called Albion College. So when you graduated, what did you want to do? Uh, you know, I had no idea what I wanted to do when I went to undergrad. Uh, but there was a guy at Albion named Joel Manby who was in the same fraternity that, was, that I was in, but I, we never met. He graduated before I got there, but he had this reputation of being really smart. He was an economics major. He was an athlete. And he had gone to General Motors and gotten a GM fellowship. And so because I had nothing, no other way to create a roadmap, when I heard the story and I heard how much people admired him, I said, I'm going to do that. And so when, when uh, GM came to campus, I went to interview, and I went there thinking when I go, I'm going to become a GM fellow. All right, so you did. I did. I had no idea when I went that it was like one or two GM fellows out of 800 or 900,000 employees. But uh, I got really lucky. So how many years were you at General Motors? I was at General Motors for two and a half years, okay. and I became a GM fellow. And, and eventually you decided to go to business school. That's when I decided to go to business school. So you wanted to go, and you got accepted in the University of Chicago uh, School of Business. What did your mother say? <laughs> Are you crazy? Are you leaving uh, General Motors to go back to school? She didn't even know what an MBA was. And, of course, in the African-American community, uh, getting a job at a company like General Motors was the be-all, end-all. Uh, so my mother was very proud. My father was very proud. Uh, and so when I told them I was leaving, they thought I'd lost my mind. You formed a partnership with uh, Penny Pritzker at some point to do parking. Is that right? Yeah. So when I was uh, working at JLL, um, that we went through this real estate recession in the early 90s and the senior people at the firm said, let's do a retrospective on all these different asset classes to see what happened, why we, how we overpaid, why we ran into so much trouble, what really happened in the marketplace. And when I did that, I recognized, wow, there were a lot of reasons why I liked the parking assets better than I did office and retail and industrial. Uh, and so I started really noodling on the differences between those asset classes and came up with a rationale to start a business. Uh, in the parking space. But I crossed paths with Penny Pritzker, who later became our Secretary of Commerce. Uh, and she liked the idea, and she and I uh, went off on this adventure together and built a real estate operating company in the parking space. Okay, and so how big did it become? You know, it's probably a billion and a half uh, dollar business at and this who point. Who owns it now? It owned, it's owned by a private equity firm. Uh, we sold it to a private equity firm. And so that's the transition to private equity. People always ask, like, how did you go from being in the parking business into being in private equity? Well, when I was in the parking business, I bought my biggest competitor in a partnership with a private equity firm. So in other words, you had a parking lot business with Penny Pritzker. Mm -hmm. You sold a piece of it to, or some of it to a private equity firm. You said, these guys are not that much smarter than I am if they're as smart as I am. So if they can do it, I can do it. Basically. <laughs> It's well known that it's harder to raise money for private equity today because some people are over-allocated, they would say, and also uh, interest rates are higher. People are looking at private credit more than private equity. So how hard is it today to go out and raise private equity dollars? Yeah, it certainly has gotten more difficult than it was uh, in the last previous five years. Uh, Ten years ago, it was really hard for us uh, because we're a new firm. Uh, but look, yes, the, the obviously the 
equity markets change that sort of have that denominator effect for for a lot of capital allocators, and that makes it hard for them to commit more to private equity. Uh, but you know, we have a niche, very focused strategy, and we've had some success. I think the industries we focus on are pretty resilient, and so uh, it's taking us a little longer to raise capital, but. Uh, um, I think we'll we'll get there, but it's no doubt tougher. And your capital mostly comes in from the U.S., or do you raise money outside as well? Mostly from the U.S., but we do have some uh, some capital from Europe and, and the Middle East and other places. And what about finding deals? Is that easier or harder today in this environment? It is harder. Um, look, sellers are less eager to sell in an environment where they can't get the best price, and certainly rising interest rates have made it harder to uh, justify higher prices, and so there are fewer deals available. And of course, those companies that are being sold are really, really good companies, and there's a lot of competition for them, uh, and so prices are, are high. Uh, so you have to be very disciplined um, and selective and pick businesses that you know a lot about, uh, where you think you can cr systematically create value and that you have confidence in over the long term. And so that's what we try to do. And look, we will over-equitize businesses in this environment and worry about financing them to their capacity later uh, when the debt markets are a little bit more stabilized. Uh, so, but, so it's tougher. But you got to have an angle. you got to have a network. You have to have a systematic way to create value. Now, when he was elected president of the United States, Barack Obama was said to have a best friend, and that best friend was said to be you. So I assume you're still a pretty good friend of his. But was that a plus or a minus in building your firm? People would say, well, he's really a political person, he knows Barack Obama, or would people say, no, he's really, really substantive and he knows more than just Barack Obama? So how did that work? Well, I remember Barack asked me uh, before he ran for president what was the most important thing he could do uh, for young people of color if he ran for president. And I said, well, the most important thing you could do is win. Uh, because it would change the way the world perceived people of color in a pretty profound way. Young people would think about their futures in a different way. Certainly, he handled himself as president uh, with grace and integrity. And so I think there is a halo associated with being the friend of a person who conducted himself in such an admirable way. Even people who disagreed with him trusted him, knew he was being honest and wanted to do the right thing. And so I think... Broadly speaking, that helped. And that was Marty Nesbitt, founding partner and co-CEO of Vistria Group on Bloomberg Wealth with David Rubenstein. And coming up, we'll hear more from Nesbitt on his relationship with Obama. Plus, Ed, about Obama's long-shot presidential run. You're listening to Bloomberg Wealth with David Rubenstein, part of our Best of Bloomberg series. And this is Bloomberg. I'm Ed Baxter. And I'm Denise Pellegrini. And you're listening to Bloomberg Wealth with David Rubenstein, part of our Best of Bloomberg series. And in this episode, we're hearing from Marty Nesbitt. He's founding partner and co-CEO of Vistria Group about investing and also about social change and his longtime relationship with former President Barack Obama. So here's David Rubenstein with Nesbitt on all of that. Let's listen in. So when did you first meet Barack Obama? We met on the basketball court in Chicago and have been playing against and with each other for a number of years uh, when our wives' paths crossed at the University of Chicago. 
And my wife came home one day and said, oh, I've become friends with this really smart, wonderful lady that works at the university. We're going to go and play Scrabble with her and her husband. And I was like, no, we're not going to play Scrabble. Uh, and she pressed me and pressed me. She said, you're going to like them during life. So I went uh, to play, have dinner and play Scrabble with Barack and Michelle. And he walked out. I was like, oh. I've known you for forever, and so we have been playing ball together, and that was the beginning of a relationship between us. Is he a good Scrabble couples. player? Really good. He carried. It was the men against the women. He carried us. So one day he comes to you and says, uh, "You know, we play basketball together, but I, I think I'm going to run for the state legislature. Can you help me? Is that what happened?" Yeah, he had he had uh, gotten sort of into the state legislature on his on his own, uh, but when he decided he wanted to run for Congress. He asked me if I would help. Well, he ran for Congress against Bobby Rush. Yes. And he lost two to one against the incumbent. And then he decided, I'm going to run for the Senate, the United States Senate. Normally, if you lose in a House seat, you don't usually then run for the Senate seat, but he did. Did you tell him that wasn't going to work? No, uh, it's funny. It's a funny story. I, I, I was out in my front yard doing yard work, and uh, he was driving by, and he saw me. He pulled over and said, hey, uh, you know, I want to tell you what I'm thinking about doing next. You have a few minutes. And I said, yeah, for sure. And he said, okay, I'm going to run for Senate. And we started laughing. And uh, laughed so hard that the next day, I was, why is my, you know, you go, why is my stomach hurt? So what? Like that kind of, that kind of laughed. And, but after we chuckled for a while, he said, no, 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 here's the deal, right? And he laid out a very cogent sort of path to how he could win. And uh, I said, look, man, I'm in. He decides to run for the presidency of the United States. Did he call you and say, guess what? I got something even funnier than <laughs> running for the Senate. No, we were, ha we were in Hawaii together at the time. We used to go every year for vacation. And he, he asked me uh, what I thought the odds of him being president were if he ran. And, uh, you know, I gave some small probability. Well, you said uh, there's been so many African-American men <laughs> right. elected president already. Named so. Barack Obama. Right. 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 But I gave him some small percentage and he looked at me funny and I said, no, no, look, if I had that probability of being president, I would run. Right. Because uh, I thought it was uh, substantive enough. And I knew he had this appeal. I watched the Senate campaign up close and personal. So I thought uh, he had, you know, as reasonable shot as any African-American would. So did you get involved in his campaign? Yeah, from the, from the very beginning, from that moment on. He gets the nomination, uh, gets elected president. Does he say, why don't you come in the government with me? What did you say? We had a conversation about that. At the end of the day, I thought it would be awkward to be best friends and a colleague with people you know, in the administration. So as I was driving here today from the south side of Chicago, I saw some big construction underway in the south side of Chicago near the University of Chicago campus. Uh, that is where the Obama Foundation that you're the chair of, is that right? Right. right. Is building a, is, you call it a center? Presidential or a, center. Okay. So what is it going to be, what's going to be done there? We're trying to build a place that creates an environment, a network, the center of the universe for change. And can we create a place that accelerates the way the world, the pace at which the world becomes a better place? And so bring leaders, connect them, teach them the ways to navigate um, their worlds, 
to make their ideas and programs more successful more quickly. So did you find it harder to ask for money for Vistria or harder to ask for money for the Obama Center? Uh, look, I don't find either of them very hard because I think there's a payoff for people who choose to invest in either. Now you've built this very successful firm. What does your mother tell you about the decision to leave General Motors? <laughs> Wasn't a bad idea after all. Now, there are relatively few private equity firms that have been founded or co-founded by African-Americans. Why do you think that is? And was that make it harder for you to get this off the ground or make it somewhat easier because people were trying to help you a little bit more? Well, I think uh, one of the reasons is just exposure. You know, I had no idea in high school or in college and even in business school, uh, for that matter, what private equity was and how it worked and how you got into it and what the right career paths to get there were. So I think that's one of the reasons uh, why you don't see more African-Americans in the business. Um, I do think there is a focus on give, providing opportunity for people of color to enter this industry. But that opportunity sometimes is constrained, right? They, they let you in through emerging manager programs, but when you get a certain size, you're no longer eligible and you hit a ceiling. And so I think it's a real challenge in that regard, but, but changing and I think getting better. Many people probably come to you for investment advice. If you go to a cocktail party, people say, what should I do with my money? What would you tell a person to do with $100,000 today? Well, look, I mean, it just kind of broad general advice is I, I think you can look at the history of the U.S. stock market and you know you're going to get a predictable uh, positive outcome over the long term. And so if I think if people have a long horizon in life, that there's no better place to put your money than in debt and equities and public markets in, in the U.S. And so I, I kind of refrain from telling people to take okay. these outside, you know, uh, what, is, what is the risk. best investment advice you've ever received? Well, look, I learned a lot from the Pritzker family. Uh, you remember Jay Pritzker was the patriarch of the family when I uh, went into business with, with Penny. Uh, and they had a number of things that, uh, that, that still resonate with me uh, in business. One, uh, only do business with people you like. And uh, there have been one or two times that I didn't follow that advice. And every time, uh, it ends up being a mistake. Uh, two is, you know, anytime you're in a business and you are trying to create value, uh, they used to have a, a, a little saying in their family that, like, running a business is like being locked in a room with no doors and no windows. And you, as an entrepreneur or operator, have to find the hidden door. You have to find the hidden window that's going to create, open up access to, to value. So just a number of things from the family and their ethic and philosophy around investing that, that resonates with me and I carry all the time. And what do you think is the uh, most common mistake that investors generally make? Well, I, I think people think just because you pay a low price, uh, just because you pay a low price doesn't mean you didn't overpay. Just because you pay a high multiple doesn't mean that you overpaid, right? So, so I think people make a mistake of thinking that value is just the, the price, but there, there are a lot of subtleties to, to, to creating value in, in this business that you have to be uh, acutely aware of and, and engaged in. So when you're not running your firm and you're not being the father to five children and you're not helping with the Obama Center, what do you do on the outside for the 
one or two minutes a week you might have <laughs> available. Are you uh, still uh, uh, not playing basketball anymore? Not playing basketball anymore. Golfer? Too old. I, I like to golf. Uh, I like to spend time with my friends and, and family. And can you beat Barack Obama in golf? You know, he's gotten pretty good. He's gotten pretty good. He's a single-digit oh. uh, handicap, and uh, so anybody who goes out and plays with them, uh, giving you advance notice. And that was Marty Nesbitt, founding partner and co-CEO of Vistria Group on Bloomberg Wealth with David Rubenstein. And coming up, we'll hear from Nesbitt on his future. You're listening to Bloomberg Wealth with David Rubenstein, part of our Best of Bloomberg series. And this is Bloomberg. I'm Ed Baxter. And I'm Denise Pellegrini. You're listening to Bloomberg Wealth with David Rubenstein, part of our Best of Bloomberg series. In this episode, we're hearing from Marty Nesbitt, founding partner and co-CEO of Vistria Group, about golf, private equity investing, and politics. And here is David Rubenstein now with Nesbitt. Check this out. Some people in private equity who might say that the, there's an inverse relationship between your handicap and your rate of return. So you don't want to have too low a handicap because your rate of return might go the wrong way. I'm terrible. Okay. I'm a terrible right, golfer. Okay, I enjoy it, but I'm not very good. Suppose somebody came to you and said, um, you've done very well in business. Uh, you're very personable. You know Barack Obama. Uh, why don't you run for office? What would you say? Uh, no way. I mean, I, I don't think I have the personal attributes to be good at politics. Uh, I thrive in an environment where 100% of the people are on the same page and are pursuing the same objective and have agreed to a, a path forward. That's really hard to do in, in politics. Uh, it takes a different constitution to reconcile the fact that half the people disagree with you. Or if they don't, they want to figure out a reason to disagree with you. I, I don't have a profile. Forget politics. Suppose the president of the United States, uh, President Biden, said, you know, I got to know you uh, when Barack Obama was president. Um, you should come in and be a cabinet officer or something. You would say? That's tough. I feel I can make a better impact uh, doing what I'm doing. We really think we figured out how to leverage the private capital to make a real difference in the world and at the same time generate a really good return. And that was Marty Nesbitt, founding partner and co-CEO of Chicago-based Vistria Group on Bloomberg Wealth with David Rubenstein. All right, Denise, we're going to switch gears now from investing, social change, and politics to one of the industries people like to invest in. That's right, Ed, and for that we go to the annual economic conference of Aix-en-Provence, dubbed the French Davos. Now the topic at this year's gathering, renewing hope. And Bloomberg's Caroline Conan had a chance to catch up with the CEO of drug maker Sanofi outside on the sidelines of that gathering. And here's Caroline with CEO Paul Hudson. Check this out. You just participated here in a panel in X about uh, industrial renaissance and sovereignty. Uh, do you think we are still too dependent on the U.S. and China when it comes to drugs, when it comes to medicine? Should we repatriate more of the production here in Europe? You know, we uh, invest a lot in manufacturing in Europe, as most big healthcare companies do. In fact, 40% of our global manufacturing is done out of France in itself. Um, sovereignty and investment in healthcare, for me, are like different questions. Sovereignty is people worrying about shortages, worrying about not being able to get medicines. You know, we felt that after the pandemic. What's basically driven that, and I mentioned this at the panel, over time, governments have wanted to pay less and less for medicines to a point where it's lower than the cost to make them in Europe. You know, we have high quality standards, great labor standards, and so consequently it costs a little bit more. 
the prices have come down so far, they're made outside of Europe. And that's sort of okay until people want sovereignty and then it's not okay. And you can then try and repatriate it and do different things. Really, the best way to do it is just to price responsibly. That's a good value for the health system and the payer in the country. And then allow companies to just stay and make them in their home markets. It just makes more sense. We get great support, I said at the panel, from the French government. But there's so much more that can be done to create an environment that becomes, if you like, sovereign uh, automatically without having to come in at the end to try and fix something. And, and we'll do our best uh, in that journey. Do you see a risk that in a few years from now we will have forgotten the lessons about the pandemic and move production again elsewhere where costs are lower? Well, I think we have this paradox, don't we, that post-pandemic there is a lot of budget deficits, fiscal challenges, so people will still go for the lowest unit cost because governments are trying to balance their books. We sort of understand that. But in healthcare, you have to take a long-term view. And healthcare perhaps has not been a priority for the EU, at least not in terms of what it creates in terms of population health and inward investment. And it's something really for everybody to think about. So I think, yes, sadly, there will be a desire to go much lower cost again, and that will lead to uh, having to repatriate at a later stage. However, I think some long-term thinking, some clear-mindedness to try and make sure that at least a percentage of essential medicines is made in Europe, which means you have some flexibility. Perhaps it's not all. Maybe it's 40% or 50%. But if you can think about resiliency post-pandemic, there's the sort of things you need to do. Recently, we talked a lot about AI, artificial intelligence, how it's going to change the way we do business. How is Sanofi using AI uh, in the production of medicines, in the outlook for health? I mean, look, I'm privileged to live and work in France. Uh, France has some of the best mathematicians in the world, some of the best universities, biology, chemistry, engineers, and that all together in a, in a, in a generative AI world means that France has the best raw materials to be at the forefront of everything. We have amazing collaborations with companies, local companies like Okin, you know, lead, world leaders in what they do in drug development. Give you an example, working with them to make sure that when we research a new medicine, we make sure that we look for patients that will get the maximum benefit. Not everybody, the max, because patients react differently. Imagine what an efficient use of healthcare spend is if medicines are given to patients that will get the maximum benefit to their life only. Working with them to help do that, working drug discovery to help find uh, drugs for diseases that are undruggable because we just didn't have the capacity to think about how to solve it. And then here's the thing, while they're all very expert areas and essential areas, there's also this generation of what I call snackable AI. How do we make our lives easier on a daily basis? How do we make better decision intelligence? And our ambition at Sanofi is to be the world's leading company, perhaps outside of tech, to use AI at scale so that everybody every day gets a nudge to help them look at something or gain an insight that can make them more efficient. We have 22,000 employees have access to AI in the company, 9,000 using it on a daily basis. You know, I think we're pretty much one of the leading organizations of AI at scale. And, and in this country, with the mathematicians and the data scientists, it's such a great opportunity. Obviously, Sanofi looks uh, very different from when you joined in uh, 2019. Um, you have three major drug launches this year, yet it seems like this is not exactly reflected in your share price. Do you know why? Ah, look, we've had 20 and 30 years of of the company, uh, 50 years since it was born and uh, more recent performances. But for me, the last four years, we said we were going to do things that had never been done before. 
first-in-class, best-in-class medicines change people's lives. Three launches of medicines hemophilia, for example, this year to do something never been done before. We're now entering a steady state for the company. It's taken four years and a lot of hard work to get us to a point where we have 27 major clinical readouts, three launches, three vaccines on top of that going into late stage development, five major readouts of transformational medicines in this year alone. I think the market is now waking up to the fact that with the real deal, and it's not uh, a temporary thing, it's a, it's a deep-rooted commitment to doing things that have never been done before. And whilst we think our value will grow and grow, we're much more excited about being able to treat diseases that were never treated before. And importantly, you know, even this year alone, our performance in terms of relative value to our peers has really started to stand out. So, no, we're doing the right things and we'll be appreciated as we go, but I'm really thrilled with what we're doing. One thing we've seen is uh, uh, GSK and Johnson & Johnson spinning off the consumer health unit. Is that something that Sanofi would consider? You know, we've said from the very beginning that uh, helping people's lives comes in many different ways. And our consumer brands touch so many lives in so many different ways. You're here in France, Dolipran perhaps is part of the, the family at your home. It is in terms of most French households. There's so many great things we do in consumer. We said back in 19, let's try and get our consumer business growing faster than the rest of Sanofi faster than the market and they've done an incredible job to turn that business into a really fast-moving consumer health company a new category almost so you know, we're thrilled with what they're doing we'd like to do more of course um, you know we watch what other companies do it's sort of our responsibility as management but right now we're doing uh, great work between consumer pharma vaccines and uh, we're really on the move Finally, we're seeing a lot of concerns uh, macroeconomically, obviously due to the geopolitical uncertainties, but also higher rates. Uh, do you fear a deep recession in Europe going forward? Uh, are we misunderstanding the fact that there is a delay between monetary policy and transmission to the real, the real economy, and perhaps we're not out of the woods yet when it comes to recession? I think you said it beautifully, the delay between policy and sort of impact outcome is there for all to see. I think we perhaps have to hold our nerve a little bit. And that was Paul Hudson, CEO of Sanofi with Bloomberg's Caroline Conan on the sidelines of the annual economic conference of Aix-en-Provence, or the French Davos. And coming up... Max wins the British Grand Prix! We kick the tires of all the talent in Formula One with Christian Horner, team principal for Red Bull. You're listening to Bloomberg Best, and this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Best. I'm Ed Baxter. And I'm Denise Pellegrini. All right, Denise, let's turn now to Formula One after the British Grand Prix at Silverstone. Yeah, and Formula One, Ed, has really been exploding in popularity with its U.S. fan base growing. Yeah, that's right. And we have Netflix Drive to Survive to thank in part for that traction. Yeah, we sure do. And also, of course, the drive to survive the grit, really, of the drivers themselves. And Bloomberg's Tom Keane and Jonathan Farrow had a chance to catch up with Christian Horner, team principal for the Red Bull Racing Team, to ask him about Silverstone and the competition among this year's racers. 
Check this out. Well, look, it's, it's one of the best circuits on the tour. It's, uh, it's fast. It's demanding. It sorts the men out from the boys. It's, uh, yeah, a big challenge. And it's, it's old school. I mean, this track goes back to uh, just after the Second World War. So uh, an old airfield with a perimeter road converted into a racing circuit that has developed over the years. But it's, it's one of the big tests for the drivers and the teams. Christian, can you describe the guy that you're working with every single day? How special is Max Verstappen? I think what we're witnessing at the moment is a, is a sportsman that's just a, really at the top of his game. And, uh, you know, he's a joy to work with. And he continues to surprise us with just the, the, the levels that he's, that he's reaching and, uh, you know, the height that he's hitting. So, as I say, nothing is, uh, nothing is, uh, he continues just to continue to surprise us at the moment. But he's in the form of his life. And I think there's more to come. Christian, I think Americans are fascinated by this. I look at the, the wonderful coverage Sky Sports is doing, and basically they forget about Verstappen five minutes into the race to look at all the Netflixy sub races and all that baloney. We have in America a guy for the Los Angeles Angels in baseball named Otani, who's once in a generation. Is Verstappen like that? I think, look, we've, we're in a halcyon period of Formula One. We've got Lewis Hamilton, the most successful driver of all time time out there. We've got Fernando Alonso that's doing it for the old guys. And, you know, we've got this emergence of Max Verstappen. And I think only in time will history judge just how good he is. But what we're seeing at the moment is certainly something pretty special, particularly with the results that he's ratcheting up. Christian, talk to me about how, from a manager's perspective, you maintain harmony within the team. Christian, can you tell me as a manager how you're maintaining the harmony when you have to provide the resources for someone as dominant as Max and maintain the confidence of his teammate. Well, I think he's just dealing with openness and honesty, and I think the relationship between the two guys is is strong. And and the most important thing is that they talk to each other. They they communicate. When there's an issue, they talk about it. We get it on the table and um, and get it addressed. Can we expect Checo to be racing for Red Bull next year then, Ch- Christian? Yeah, he's got a contract. He's with us till you know till the end of 24. So, and we're happy, irrelevant of the contract. We're happy with uh, you know the overall performance of him. He's had some some difficult Saturdays recently, but uh, his racing's been great, and hopefully, the confidence from that podium in Austria is going to put him. Uh, you know, back on the pace here. Let's talk about someone else on the grid who's unhappy. Lewis Hamilton, unhappy with the dominance of Red Bull, unsurprisingly. Christian, he's had some recommendations on what they can do about that. Maybe we can set a time limit for when we start to plan for next year's race car. Christian, what's your response to people who are fed up with the dominance of your team? Well, look, it's flattering in many respects. The sport goes in cycles. I mean, Mercedes, I mean, how many years did they dominate and nobody got anywhere near um, seeing them for about seven years? So, uh, uh, look, we're, we're, we're performing at an incredibly high level. The team is doing its job. Um, and the others, you know, will be putting a target on us and they'll be trying to catch. And I think with stability of the rules, the, the field is going to converge. Mm-hmm. It's only a matter of time. So, uh, um, so yeah, I, I think trying to get everybody to start to design their car at you know a start date would it would just be impossible to manage and, uh, and and police. And that was Christian Horner, team principal for Formula One's Red Bull Racing Team, with Bloomberg's Tom Keen and Jonathan Farrell. And that's it for this edition of Bloomberg Best, featuring Formula One racing and also an exclusive interview with the CEO of Sanofi and an in-depth chat with Marty Nesbitt, founding partner and co-CEO of Vistria Group on Bloomberg Wealth with David Rubenstein, part of our Best of Bloomberg series. 
I'm Ed Baxter. And I'm Denise Pellegrini. And this is Bloomberg. Stay with us. Top stories and global business headlines are coming up right now.